0: Friends, and welcome back to Speaking to Impact with your host, OJM International. The Speaking to Impact podcast shares proven tools and strategies to help listeners communicate with clarity and confidence. Today, OJM invites Von L. McCoy to the Speaking to Impact table. Mr. McCoy, an accomplished lawyer and businessman, is a dynamic speaker with a wealth of insight and experiences. To name a few, Vaughn has served as the Assistant Attorney General of the State of New Jersey, Director of Criminal Justice, and Managing Director and Vice President Legal for PSENG. He now serves as the Business Administrator for the city of Patterson, New Jersey, his native city. I first have to say, it is an absolute pleasure to have one of the gentlemen I admire, whose story has been an inspiration for me, sit down for a brief chat on Speaking to Impact. So we're gonna jump right in. You've heard a little of his bio, so you know he has a lot of insight to share with us. So let's dive into our first question. Anyone taking a quick look at your bio, Von, can see that you've held a lot of different positions. How important has the ability to speak with clarity and confidence been to your success in these roles?
1: Well, I think as an attorney, obviously, and oh, thank you for inviting me on the podcast tonight. Uh, It's certainly a pleasure to be here with you. Mm -hmm. I've seen you grow over the years and you've seen me grow in a lot of different respects. So to see you now doing podcasts, teaching people how to speak with impact is very, very special. So as an attorney, as you can imagine, one of the key success factors Mm -hmm. is being able to communicate. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to communicate with clarity is paramount. But I think in order to communicate or speak with clarity, you really have to think and write Mm -hmm. with clarity. And so when people speak with clarity, that's just the third component of I think what I what I think is like the three-legged stool. Mm -hmm. To be able to think clearly, to be able to write clearly, and then be able to communicate what you thought and what you wrote. And so being able to speak. And so I think the speaking part is the last part of the the wheel, if Mm -hmm. you will, or the stool. Mm -hmm. It's really the last part. Because if someone speaks well. Nine times out of 10, they can write clearly, and then they go through the process of thinking it out clearly so that they can write, so they can speak. So so I think the speaking part is what people see, mm-hmm. but I think before you can speak well, you really have to learn to write well and to think well.
0: Absolutely. There is certainly a merger between critical thinking, writing well, and speaking well. Oh, absolutely. And as we think about today's marketplace where... We're no longer in the industrial age, but rather the informational age where people are being paid for, for what they know and their ability to innovate. How important is it to train youth
1: to think critically? Well, like you said, you've been in education for a very long time. My life is in education, and we've all gone through educational systems at different parts of our lives. And when I was coming up through education, it was really about how you thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it transitioned to more of standardized tests and scores mm-hmm. and really a formulaic process of teaching uh, and learning. But I think the ability to think critically mm-hmm. about issues, because in order to solve the issues that we have in our country and in our world today, it's not formulaic. Right. We We need, you know, real people who can think through problems, assess those problems and then come up with real world solutions. There's no formula for that. And so to be able to challenge convention and then be able to articulate why you are challenging convention and then being able to come up with a solution that others around you can accept because you were able to kind of think it through, uh, come up with some logic, if you will, come up with some research and data to support what you're saying in order to make a convincing argument that we cannot continue to do things the way we did in the past, Mm -hmm. we have to challenge convention and do things in a new and innovative way. Something you just said was key. You said, come up with a
0: solution and then be able to articulate the solution you conceived. Have you witnessed moments in your professional life where people's intellect and imagination superseded their
1: ability to skillfully convey their ideas or concepts? Right, right. So to me, it's just like an example with leadership, right? You have people who have great substantive knowledge about a particular area, but they can't communicate what they know to other people. They're great at what they do you know, they're subject matter experts, but the ability to convey ideas in a way that the receiver can accept it. Right. See, a lot of people who have a specific expertise, they can convey ideas to people who are in their field mm-hmm. because people can understand them. That's very easy. But to be able to convey an idea or thought to somebody who's not in your field, mm-hmm. that's a very different skill set. And I think very effective speakers are able to take the most complex issue, Mm -hmm. boil it down into some simple terms so that a six-year-old can understand it. That's the art of speaking. And that's what I think uh, a lot of speakers miss when they go out to do a presentation. They are, sometimes they confuse who their audience is. And so when you speak, you definitely have to know who your audience is and be able to break down a subject or a concept in a way that a six-year-old can understand. And I think I learned that skill as a trial lawyer, Mm -hmm. you know, as a prosecutor, being able to take a complex set of facts and boil it down to maybe three or four main themes or points that a jury could understand because I'm trying to recreate or relive the experience for the jury. They were not there. Mm -hmm. And so in order for me to do that, I have to make it very, very simple, understanding that you can have a juror who's 23 years old with no education to a PhD who has a lot of education and everything in between. And so to be able to take that case and boil it down into some very specific theme that everybody can understand, that's not an easy thing to do. But I think those who can do it well are very effective and are very successful.
0: Agreed. I think that's a very powerful point. And ladies and gentlemen, you can see why I wanted this gentleman on the show. So in essence, you just spoke of conducting a situational analysis as well as gathering demographic information for your audience to help ensure you boil your argument down to its essence. Which leads me to another question that I wanted to ask. Mm -hmm. So you've gone through the sometimes grueling process of creating a strong closing argument in court on, on more than one occasion. What tips can you provide to a young or even seasoned lawyer desiring to strengthen his or her ability to structure and deliver strong closing arguments but aren't quite sure how
1: to further hone their current process. Right. So I think Aristotle got it right. Aristotle basically said in order to persuade you have to do three things, right? You have to appeal to the ethos, mm-hmm. the pathos, and the logos. So I think mm-hmm. when you talk about ethos, you're talking about the appeal to ethics, right? Mm-hmm. And it's an argument or a method of convincing that's based upon the credibility of the speaker. And so before you say anything, the people who you are talking to have to believe that you're credible Mm. because if they don't believe that you're credible, you could be talking truth. They won't believe you. Right. And so in delivering a closing argument, that's the end of the process. I had to make sure that the jury believed me from the time they saw me in jury selection. Mm. My credibility had to begin then. It couldn't wait till the closing argument. And so I had to conduct myself in a way throughout that whole trial so that Mm -hmm. when I got up to give my closing, the jury would believe me. So I had to have credibility. Mm -hmm. The second thing was I had to appeal to the senses of the juror. And so that's what the pathos is. Right. So it's a method of convincing that's based upon the creation of an emotional response. So I had Mm -hmm. to convince them that, you know, what they heard, what they saw, what they felt was real, Mm -hmm. you know, particularly if I was trying to persuade them to see something my way. Right. And so I wanted to appeal to a sense of emotion. Then I wanted to appeal to their logos, the reason. Right. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to understand that if everything that I said was true, if the premises that I gave them were true, then therefore the conclusion must be true. Mm-hmm. And so all those things are going on. Any effective argument, whether you're trying to convince your parents to buy you a toy, right. whether you're trying to convince a girl to go out with you, mm-hmm. whether you're trying to convince your boss for a raise. These are all the three ingredients I think you need in order to make an effective argument. And if you have all three, you have a powerful argument. Sometimes you have one, then you have to go to the other two. Sometimes you have two, you have to go to the other one. So it just depends on the set of facts that you have.
0: That's so good. And and I like the fact that you bring up when you're an effective communicator, it runs throughout your life, not just your professional life. It merges into your personal life as well. So someone listening to you now can obviously see that you have the ability to effectively communicate. However, take us back to your formative years, some of your childhood experiences that lead to where you are now, perhaps even unconsciously, seeds that were planted while, while growing up in Patterson that help you become a critical thinker and
1: the communicator you are now. That's a really good question. And as, as I think back, the, the cultural expression of African-American people, particularly mm-hmm. in inner city communities, is a rich one. Mm -hmm. And so looking back at how I wanted to be perceived and how I wanted to conduct myself in the community, you could not be a shrinking violet. Mm -hmm. You had to be aggressive. You had to be able to assert yourself in a certain way if you wanted to thrive or survive. Absolutely. And so part of that thriving and surviving for me was to be able to articulate how I felt about a given situation. So like I said before, whether I was trying to convince my mother to buy me a toy for Christmas, whether I wanted to convince a girl to go out with me, whether I wanted to convince some members of the community to choose me to be on their team. Right. Because, you know, they were picking up, choosing up sides and, right. and you had to make an argument. as to why right. They should pick you. Mm-hmm. You wanted your friends to include you in certain things. You wanted to teach you not to fail you. So we've always had opportunities to convince other people to either do something for us or spare us from something. hmm. And so I think we have learned as a community, I certainly I did, that the better I could articulate myself, mm-hmm. the better off I could possibly be. Mm-hmm. And so I think those seeds of being able to communicate and stand up in front of people and not be afraid to kind of express myself mm-hmm. uh, in a way, you know, really helped me to kind of grow and develop you know, as a speaker today. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like you said, it started when I was very, very young. I think it's very appropriate that you bring
0: up the African-American vernacular Particularly as young men growing up during the late 70s and through the 80s, and listening to old school MCs and, and their wordplay, and, and what hip hop was about in those days MCs making arguments and even engaging in battles. So, was hip hop a major
1: influence for you? Absolutely. Up? <laughs> I'm sitting here, you know, I'm a hip hop junkie. Right. I mean, you know, like you said, kind of growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, when hip hop kind of first burst onto the scene. And we were in an inner-city community not far from the Bronx and Brooklyn and Manhattan and Queens where hip-hop kind of began. And so listening to those MCs and that word play and the use of, you know, big words and little words and rhyming words and then the syncopation of, of stringing words together that didn't make sense, that made sense. I mean, you know, it was phenomenal. I me mean, To me, it was like, you know modern day poetry, absolutely. That, that, you know, some of the greats, you know, the last poets, the Gil Scott Herons, the Langston Hughes, all those folks, mm-hmm. you know, the poetry that they wrote, you know, it was kind of coming into the 21st century, if you will, with these new young MCs mm-hmm. who are expressing their frustration mm-hmm. about what was going on in America at the time. And so when you look at hip hop and how it started and where it is today, I mean, it's really all about the ability to speak mm-hmm. and to express themselves in a way so that people would listen to him and hear him.
0: And it's interesting that you bring up the fact that MCs made up words because scholars who've studied Shakespeare tell us he made up words, increasing our lexicon. And when we look at hip hop, we see its commercial influence in the selling of products and services. Words created on an album are now being used in popular culture. Absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of influence, another question that I wanted to be sure that I posed is what speakers do you personally admire? Who are the people you are always hyped or ready
1: to hear from because of the impact you know you'll receive from what they'll share? Wow, Uh, it's funny because it's almost come full circle for me. So the the speaker that I can remember that really first mesmerized me uh, is currently my pastor. Oh, wow. Dr. DeForest Bustasores. I first heard him at the Greater Patterson Youth Crusade Back in 1984, 85, Mm. I was a young student in Eastside High School, and they had a youth crusade in the evenings for a whole week. It was the first time I've ever done something like that. And he was probably in his late 20s, early 30s at that point in time. And he preached messages that week that I remember to this day. And his delivery was powerful.
2: Mm.
1: His ability to create clear word pictures, powerful. His ability to relate to the audience and the young people who were there, powerful. Mm -hmm. His ability to connect on all levels was very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And so here I am, you know, some 30 years later, I've been a member of his church for, you know, the past two years. Mm -hmm. And that same ability that attracted me to him then Mm -hmm. is that same ability that reconnected, me with him a few years ago. And so I think I really admire him as a speaker. Others in that field, I mean, Dr. A.R. Bernard, mm-hmm. another powerful speaker who has the ability to take very complex scripture, mm-hmm. data, analytics, and really bring it down and boil it down to something that's very, very powerful and that's accessible, you know, mm-hmm. to the listener. My wife, Dr. Marty McCoy, I-, I listened to her for many, many years. She's an amazing speaker. Mm-hmm. And again, she really has the c- ability to connect with the listener on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. And I love the way she kind of pulls in all of her experiences into how she speaks and how she teaches. And so Dr. David Ireland, I mean, a lot of these folks, I listen to them on YouTube or their podcasts mm-hmm. because I really know and understand, and it goes back to what I talked about, you know that ethos, that credibility right. that they mm-hmm. have, right? And then the pathos that they have, the ability to connect with my emotions and how I'm feeling or what I'm feeling about a certain situation. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the, the logic that mm-hmm. kind of goes along with that. And so when I look at speakers and I can learn something from every speaker, Dr. John Maxwell, I have listened to him and watched him mm-hmm. for the past 25 you know, years and, and a lot way. of his progeny, if you will, mm-hmm. powerful speakers who are really teaching many people, including me to perfect the art of speaking and teaching and communicating. And that's, mm-hmm. I think that's what it's all about.
0: Now, when you were just talking about those various speakers I could hear the level of impact they've made on you by releasing their voice. When you think about how a life is often enriched through hearing another's voice, how important is it that we discover and release our voice?
1: I think it's very important because we all have a different voice. And I think a lot of people shirk or shrink back from the responsibility of speaking Mm -hmm. because they believe that their voice has no distinction. Mm. They believe that there's somebody out there that's saying something similar and they may be, but they don't have your experience. Mm. Only you have your experience. And so what I've learned is to find my own voice. But in finding my own voice, I listen to other voices. I think it's so true what you're saying about the
0: oversaturation of the market. A lot of people are speaking. A lot of people are speaking. In particular, in this day and time. That is correct. it's, It's easier than ever to have your voice heard and for a lot of people, that can be extremely discouraging. Uh, For people who are saying, I feel led to speak, but I don't know what I could add that hasn't already been said. And I think what you just said can unlock some people from becoming a victim of focusing on the oversaturation of the market. So can you say a, a
1: little bit more there? Sure, and what I've learned is that there's really no one out there saying something that's never been said before it's being packaged differently, mm-hmm. it's being said differently, it's being said through their own personal or cultural lens, through their own personal cultural experiences. But when you boil it down, it's probably the same principle that 50 other people have talked about, Right. right? However, because there are 330 million people in the United States, mm-hmm. you may say it one way, It doesn't resonate with somebody. Absolutely. I may say the same thing in a different way. It may resonate with them. Mm -hmm. So not every speaker resonates with every audience. So therefore, you have an opportunity for people to resonate with your voice, Mm -hmm. even though they may have heard it someplace else. And I think from human psychology and human experience, we also know that it takes people at least seven or eight times to hear a concept before they really get it. Oh, that's good. So you may have said it one way. Mm-hmm. I may have said it another way. But then somebody else may have said it a third way and a fourth way. And then finally, on the seventh way, they got it. So everybody has a role in that growth and development process. Mm-hmm. So you, you may be the planter and that's it. You're, you're just <laughs> planting, Right. Then somebody else is going to come along and water it. And then somebody else is going to come along and get the increase. Mm-hmm. So you just never know where you are in the cycle and where the audience is in that learning and development cycle. Absolutely.
0: Now, you've had the opportunity to prepare for so many different types of speeches before team members you supervise, in court proceedings, keynote speaker invitations. So what are some of the commonalities in your preparation? What have you noticed? How do you prepare? Or in other words, how do you ensure you will be
1: heard? The, the first thing I want to know as much about my audience as I possibly can know. So I want to know the ages, the sexes, the demographics, you know, the cultures, the races, the ethnicities. I want to know as much as possible about the audience, because mm. that's going to help me to figure out a way, you know, to connect with different people on different levels. So I, I want to know that. Right. Okay. I also want to know what my message is. What, what's my objective? Mm-hmm. What do I want these people to walk away feeling, thinking or saying? Mm-hmm. Right. Not necessarily about me. Right. Because I really can't be worried about what they're thinking about me. I just really have to be focused on what's the message, Mm -hmm. you know, and if the message is clear, it's consistent, it's concise, then they will have a favorable impression of of me regardless of what my message is. Right. Even if they don't like it, even Mm -hmm. if it's a message about, look, I need to lay you off. (laughs) Right. Uh, but 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 if I'm clear, I'm concise, I'm confident, I'm sure and I articulate as to why we're doing the layoff. Mm-hmm. They may not like the message. Right. But they say, you know what, Mr. McCoy treated us with dignity and respect. Mm. You know, he understood how we felt. He empathized with us. Right. Right. So you want to you want to understand what and then you have to know your material. There's no substitute for knowing whatever you're talking about. Right. There's, there's no substitute for it. You can't fake it. You know, you really have to know the message that you want to articulate or the subjects that you want to talk about and be authentic and be real mm-hmm. and, and build in some transparent moments within your presentation. I, I mm-hmm. think most people understand that we're human and uh, we're not super men and superwomen. And to the extent that you can show some vulnerability as to how this is a very difficult decision for you as well, mm-hmm. or whatever the situation is, I think it will help you connect with people on a, on a different level. So good. So good valuable nuggets.
0: And there was something that you mentioned that I, I sort of want to piggyback on because you made reference to maybe having to lay someone off. Sure. Which is a, a difficult conversation. And many people struggle. Or terminate them. Or terminate them. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I even more difficult. Yeah. People struggle having difficult conversations. And because they struggle, they tend to just not have them. Right. So, how does one have a difficult conversation when well, we're talking about speaking to impact? Because in life, there will be moments where you have to enter into a difficult
1: conversation. Yeah, we, we all tend to shy away from having those conversations. I don't know if I know anyone who likes to have difficult conversations, right? right? It's just not pleasant mm-hmm. because we're human beings. But as you mentioned in life, we have to have some difficult conversations by virtue of being a leader. Mm-hmm. So as a leader, I have to put aside how I personally feel about it Mm -hmm. Uh, And have a difficult conversation with an employee or a colleague. But again, I think it goes back to what I talked about earlier with having that credibility. Right. Mm -hmm. So the conversation is the end of the process. Right. Mm -hmm. If you have a relationship and establish credibility way before that conversation, Mm -hmm. when you have it, it's a much easier conversation. The more difficult conversation to have is when you have no relationship Mm -hmm. or you don't have a good relationship and the person is not even going to trust what you're saying and they're going to think there's some ulterior motive to what right. you're saying but if you have that ethos mm-hmm. you know and that 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 credibility with whatever the the situation is or whoever the person is i think it makes the conversation a lot easier it's never easy mm-hmm. uh but again i think you have to show your humanity in that conversation and show that this is not you know easy for you uh how it's impacting you as well you know be authentic and, and show some vulnerability I think that's how you have difficult conversations and you treat people with dignity and respect. You say, listen, you know, I know this is a tough decision. You want to take the rest of the day off. I'm happy for you to do that. You know, you want me to, you know, help break the news to your your family, your loved ones, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to give you some severance, a little additional money to kind of hold you over. Right. So you can find ways in order to help ameliorate, you know, some of the burden that people may feel in having a difficult conversation. But I don't know if you can go through life without having difficult conversations. It's it's inevitable.
0: It's inevitable. (laughs) Absolutely inevitable. Switching gears here a moment. For years, of course, you were in the law space and even supervising lawyers. Yes. And then you made the decision to return to school. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who are toying with the idea of returning and some who never get around to it. Why go back to school? And specifically, you chose to pursue a master's in business administration. So what was that driving
1: impulse that led you back to
0: really commit to get it done?
1: Yeah, well, I took a mini course back in 2005 at Rutgers. It was a Rutgers mini MBA essentials course. And I did it because I always had this idea of running my own business or becoming an entrepreneur, running a nonprofit or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it also goes back to being able to speak the language, right, mm-hmm. and being able to be fluent or conversant in something that I was not accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And so I'm being able to communicate. So I right. I believe that the further I went in my legal career, the more opportunities I would have to interact with business. Mm. And so if I really wanted to be credible. Again, I wanted right. the ethos, right? I wanted the ethos. So mm-hmm. if I wanted to be credible and I wanted people to listen to what I had to say. It's unfortunate, but in this day and time, people do look at what education you have. Mm-hmm. And so I figured, well, Let me go back to school and get an MBA. I was working at PSCG at the time. Uh, I was in a business role rather than a legal role. Mm -hmm. And so I thought the combination of going back to business school, becoming conversant in that language and then applying that to what I was doing at the time, but also thinking about the future and how I would apply this to my own life, my own business, my own ventures. I just thought it was a good idea for me to do that. And, And it turned out to be a good one. Awesome. Now, not
0: only have you developed speeches, but you had the opportunity to capture your story Yes, in a personal memoir. And again, so many people desire to write a book, but you, you've done so. So can you speak from that experience and possibly provide a few tips for someone now who is seriously thinking about writing a book, may even be presently engaged in writing in coming up against writer's block right, or some other difficulty like competing interests. Sure. How do you get through some of the distractions that, <laughs> that inevitably come up? And you were still holding down a full-time job. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about getting to the finish line.
1: Well, I started writing Playing Up in 2010, but I've been thinking about it for 10 years before I even wrote it. So mm-hmm. I understand that writer's block, if you will, or just procrastination that kind Mm -hmm. of goes along with that. And so I think fear has a lot to do with that, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of getting started. But I think the thing that motivated me more than anything, quite frankly, was going back to business school. Mm -hmm. And when I went back to business school, there was a course called new product marketing. And in that course, we had to pick we had to pick a project that we could market. Mm -hmm. And so rather than come up with something that was fake I said to my classmates, "Listen, I have a book idea, and why don't we develop a marketing plan around my book?" Mm. And so they said, "Okay, Vaughn, great." So I pitched the idea to say, "Great!" So we developed this full fledged marketing plan for my book. We handed it in. The teacher gave us one of the highest grades in the class, and so they said, "Okay, Vaughn, now you have to write the book." (laughs) We 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 we, 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 we did we did all this work now you have to write the book and so. I graduated from NYU Stern on July 31st, 2010, on August 1st, 2010, boom, man, I was I was off and running. I, I wow. started putting the pieces together, collecting the information to put together the framework for this book.
0: That, that is absolutely incredible. Because again, so many people desire to do it. And for one reason or another, it gets thrown yes. behind yes. a pile of other cares. Yes. So we're coming to a close. It has been absolutely wonderful. If there's a listener who's listening and saying, I'm connecting with a lot of what Vaughn is saying, and I have an event coming up, and I'd love to
1: have him speak there. What steps should they take in order to make that happen? Well, first of all, you can visit my website. It's www.vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-N-L, McCoy, dot com. I'll say that again one more time. www. V-A-U-G-H-N-L That's the first thing you can do is go to the website and kind of check me out. You can also send me an email at VMcCoy McCoy, M-C-K-O-Y at Vaughn Again, that's V McCoy at Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-N McCoy, M-C-K-O-Y OK, thank you, kind sir. Again, this has
0: been. An enjoyable and an enriching conversation. And as we conclude, I'm going to ask you to do an on the spot closing argument. <laughs> wow. <laughs> hey, this whole conversation has been primarily impromptu anyway. So leave us with some meat to chew on on our journey towards becoming masters of effective communication. The
1: floor is yours. Well, I think it goes to the three things that Aristotle said many, many, many years ago, who was a very smart Greek philosopher. And if you are going to convince anybody of anything, whether it's your children, your spouse, your boss, a subordinate, your pastor, your teacher, or anybody, your argument has to have three components to it. Number one, you have to be a credible person. Because if you are known as someone who's not credible, I don't care what you say, Nobody's going to listen to you. So that's number one. Number two, find out what the emotional appeal can be to help somebody sympathize or empathize with your position or your plight. That's very, very critical because we are all human beings and and we have feelings. Absolutely. And so we want to know how something is making someone else feel and how you may make an argument to convince somebody to see things or feel the way you feel about a certain issue. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. And then the other piece is that logic piece. I mean, does your position make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, you better have a lot of credibility (laughs) or you might be able to appeal to the census. Right. 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 So you got to have two of the three. You know, you can't have none (laughs) of them. You have to have two of the three. You know, and I would say. You know, ethos is one. I, I think ethos is one credibility. I don't care what you do or what you say. Mm-hmm. you got to have ethos. Mm-hmm. And if you have ethos, you can probably prevail if you have one or the other two. So so it may look different in every situation that you're in. But if you understand that psychology of how people think and how they process information and what moves people from point A to point B, it basically boils down to those three things. And I think Aristotle got it right. And so it may come differently and look differently in, in, in different people and different ideas and arguments and how you posture, but it basically comes down to that. And I see it every day in the workplace, whether I'm trying to convince, you know, uh, the CEO to pursue a certain course of action and make a business case for something, you know, you appeal to those three things always. So I would leave you with those three things in terms of how you craft an argument for anything that you do. Go back and take a look at what Aristotle said. I think you'll be more effective and you'll probably win argument more, more arguments than you lose.
0: No, that was an effective closing argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again
1: for listening, my friend.
0: If you're interested in purchasing the book that was discussed on this episode, it's entitled Playing Up, One Man's Rise from Public Housing to Public Service Through Mentorship. By Von L. McCoy. It's available on Amazon.com or VonMcCoy.com. I'm OJM International, and you've been listening to Speaking to Impact. Please consider following me on Facebook or Instagram at OJM International and reviewing and subscribing to this podcast. And above all, remember your voice has value.